Well, I want to begin the time this morning with a question, and it might be a very strange question, but just hang with me. How many of you, and I would love to see a show of hands, sleep with your windows open? I know, it's such a weird, vulnerable question to ask, and you're like, what? Why is this being asked of me in church? Uh, the reason I'm asking is not because I'm interested in your sleeping habits, though that's really great, I'm not alone. It actually has to do with this new sermon series. <clears throat> and here's what I mean by that. If you sleep with your windows open, particularly this time of year, you're going to know that about four or five in the morning, the birds begin to sing, right? Usually it's for several hours until, um, uh, until the sun rises and the temperature's warm. This is what ornithologists call the dawn chorus. And I'll just say, I love birds. I've even thought about getting a bird tattoo, and you can ask me all about it. Um, I don't have any tattoos. But I've wanted to kill my fair share of birds, especially the robin. I love robins, but at four in the morning, I don't love robins. As I'm trying to eke out the last few minutes, anybody of sleep in those early morning hours. Jennifer Ackerman, I, I told you I love birds. This is a book that she wrote that I picked up earlier this year called The Bird Way. It's a beautiful book, a, a new look at how birds talk, work, play, parent, and think. Um, she writes this in the first chapter of her book, which is about the, the talking of birds and about this dawn course. She says, why birds sing so intensely before dawn is not well understood. It may have something to do with the advantages of acoustic transmission in those dark early hours, cooler temperatures, calmer air, less ambient noise from insects and traffic, and allow the bird's song to travel farther. It might be that the predators are less of a threat so they can gleefully announce their presence. Or maybe it's just that birds are up <laughs> and getting us up, and the low light makes foraging difficult, the still air is not suitable for flight, insects are not out and about, so why not sing? Maybe like one of your kids, why not sing? Or maybe birds are practicing. Maybe they're warming up for the day. Or maybe it's just their way of announcing, I survived the night. I survived the night. I love that insight. I survived the night. I mean, how many of us does that speak to? We've come through a couple years of night. Maybe it's been longer than that for you. And somehow we've survived it. We're here. Uh, maybe you have some people in your life that haven't survived it, but you need to remember, I'm, I'm still here. God is still alive. God is still working my life. And I can sing. I'm here. I'm reluctantly singing, but I can sing because I've not just survived, but God is really moving and, and doing things. I've survived the night. Ackerman then goes on. Here's what I, what I really wanted to say. She goes on to note the work of Andrew Scotch, who's an a Australian wildlife sound recordist. How about that for a job description? He views the Don Chorus, or as he calls it, he calls it the Don Chorus, as a sort of communal and collective phenomenon. Here's what he says. The Don Chorus is a reaffirmation of place and belonging every morning with mates, family groups, neighbors, and flocks. I'll say that again. The Don Chorus is a reaffirmation of place and belonging. Think about this in, in the sense of what we're doing right now. The Don Chorus, we're here, we're singing. Maybe you are just listening, but it's okay. It's a reaffirmation of place and belonging every morning with mates, family groups, neighbors, and flocks. It's a tapestry of vocal behavior that allows birds to coexist and to become the wildly successful and diverse groups that they are. That's such a valuable insight because I think it serves as this reminder to us that the Christian life, um, whether you identify as a Christian or not, uh, and all the things that come with it, church going, Bible reading, praying, serving, worshiping, all those things, it's not, it, those are good things, but it's not about doing good and being good so that somehow, someday, you might get to heaven. Um, it's about growth here and now and then participating, did you hear that? Collectively 
in that growth. You might have heard this from either Silas or I, but there's no individuals in the kingdom of God. We are, we are knit together with mates, family groups, neighbors, and flocks. And very diverse, if you think about birds, they're such a diverse species. We are intended to be a diverse community because that in that diversity, it's how God calls us. God invites us to continue in the life that God has for us. God's call to us, this invitation that I spoke about, is, is a song, if you will, to just push the metaphor a little further. And our response to God, if you think of it as a song as well, is about a reaffirmation of our place in the world. Each day, each week, we get to reaffirm, reaffirm that we belong with mates, family groups, family members, flocks, and you know, all the above, to borrow Scotch's language. And so, really, the life in Christ, if you boil it down into one thing, is about mutual invitation. We're being invited by God. We're being invited to participate with others. We're being invited by others sometimes to go deeper, to go further, to further up and further in, kind of as C.S. Lewis says somewhere. And so that said, each week in this series, we're going to focus on a different theme or a facet of God's invitation. Themes like justice, service, generosity, identity. And each week, we're going to, we're going to look at those themes, and you'll find a card in that envelope that sort of um, spells those out for you, and you'll be able to kind of follow along the direction we're going. Um, those are the hows of God's invitation. How are we invited by God into this journey? But before we dive into those, this week, that kind of is the preface to this, this time. Today, what I want to look at you with is, is the way of invitation. So each week, like I said, we're going to look at the hows. I've talked about the why, you know, participation. But what's the way of God's invitation? Um, I think the way in which God does this is so key. And this is why we chose this text from Luke 24. So we're going to look through that text real quick. We're going to break it into two parts. Silas and I are going to be co-teaching this this morning. I'm going to take this first part, and then Silas is going to come up and teach the second part. And those parts are simply outlined. There's the invitation by way of walking and invitation by way of eating, okay? Invitation by way of walking in verses 13 to 17, which I'll talk about. Invitation by way of eating or communing, if you will, which Silas will talk about when he comes up. So let's start with walking. Um, Luke tells this story at the end of his gospel, about these two people walking and talking and trying to work out what's happened to them. You heard that, right? One of them's name is Cleopas. The other we don't know. Uh, scholars will tell you. Some think it's Cleopas's wife. They don't name her. Some even think it's one of Cleopas's children, which I, I love that notion because uh, many of us have walked with our own children. It could be a young child. It could be an older child. And then the idea of walking and talking to one of your children about the things of God I just brings me a lot of joy. I don't get to do that. I don't, frankly, do that with my kids that often. I would love a day, but I have done that. And you know what that's like if you have kids. When, you start, when your kids start asking questions about Jesus, about God, about what God's doing, about the deeper things, how that stirs something in your imagination. So whoever it is, Cleopas and Cleopas' companion, they're two disciples. They're walking from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles away from Jerusalem is what the text tells us. So most people agree, and you might know this, that the average speed of walking for the human being in ancient world and now, the Nike tennis shoe did not improve this, it might have actually made it worse, is two miles an hour. Um, and so that's not an all-day journey, seven miles. You could do that easily in the morning, but it's not a walker on the block, and that's really important. It's a relatively long walk, and thus it's a, it's a long time to talk and to think. It's enough time to even change your mind. We don't know what their mindset was when they left Jerusalem, but we do have a window into their mindset at that point when Jesus met them. 
And certainly we know their mindset when they arrive in Emmaus. It's enough time to have your world turned upside down and inside out. Uh, it's, an, it's, it's clear these two are crushed with disappointment. We see that in the early verses of this text. There's an unmistakable, undeniable grief in their walk, isn't there? Some of us have been on grief walks where you have gone through an event, a traumatic event in your life, and you go for a walk to process that. It's not a coincidence that you do that. There's something about that kind of a journey that helps to unwind some of the mental kind of things that you think about. There's even this feeling, perhaps, that they had, what they had believed about Jesus had been proven false. They kind of articulate this. We had hoped, in verse 21, that he, Jesus, was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped, past tense. This is like what authors, one author says, this is the swan song of the disillusion, the coda of the brokenhearted, which I think are themes that we can all relate to, right? I mean, I think many people who are within the church, maybe perhaps you these days, uh, within the church, outside the church, really feel like the church has been exposed in recent years. Um, it has not lived up to its great promise. It has failed in many ways to be what it set out to do. We, as the leaders, and I'll own this as a leader in the church, haven't lived up to the promise of our vocation and our mission at times, right? You see this all over the world. And it's also true with God. I think many people today might feel like these two on the road to Emmaus as they think about their relationship to God. God isn't living up to God's promise. You know, we'd hoped, you know, the prophets, we thought he was great. You can feel like God isn't doing much of anything within these difficult circumstances and spaces in our lives. We're praying, we're serving, we're going to church, we're reading our Bibles, we're even praying some more, we're giving, and we don't see a lot of movement. And so there's this atmosphere of discouragement and disillusionment that I think we feel that is in this text as Jesus enters into their story. Are you with me? And it's, as he does, he begins to walk with them. He's not identified, if you read that text. He's initially just an anonymous traveler, a man, a stranger, joins them and begins to walk with them. Their eyes aren't open to him yet. It says in the text, their eyes are kept from recognizing him. I'm not going to dip into why that is. That's just the way it is, so we'll just leave that there. But he's a curious figure. You know, he's, he seems clueless, or he plays a good part, about the events that have shattered these two people's lives and the world around them that have grabbed seemingly the attention of everybody except this person. Are you the only person in the entire city of Jerusalem that hasn't heard about what happened to Jesus? He doesn't know a thing about Jesus. His life, his words, his works, his death. He's like, tell me more. I'd love to know more about this man named Jesus. You know, I can just see Jesus there. We know he bore the wounds of his death. I can just see him there. And saying, really? I've never heard of Jesus, you know? Um, what's this strange rumor? He's heard nothing about the rumor of the angels that have appeared to the women about the empty tomb, and nothing about being raised from the dead, though he himself is raised from the dead. Nothing about it. So they walk and they talk seven miles about these things together, and they share their hopes, they share their discouragement, and they share their grief, I imagine. I imagine Jesus, even in his resurrected body, inviting these two to share some of their grief about his death with them. And I wonder what that would have, how that would have affected Jesus to hear about the sense of loss that they had over him. Think about that. Fully, fully human. Jesus being moved by the, the sense of he's died and these men have, or men and women perhaps, have lost their dear friend. 
And so I just want to, um, you know, well, actually, then he starts to go through Scripture with them and talks about the great hope of the Messiah, and they walk, they talk, he teaches them about Scripture, and then, you know, their eyes are open. But I just want to pause there. I'm not going to go into the second part, because it's actually in their walking and talking that I want to center this part of the conversation. Um, it's walking, I think, as I read this, that is really the key way that God, remember we're talking about the ways in which God invites us, the key way that God invites us back into the story of God. It's walking, physical walking. In the Bible, for example, walking with God is, is one of the most theologically significant metaphors there is, and yet we don't really talk about it. We all, most of us in here, have the ability to walk. We walk every day, and we don't think much about it. You just walk from your bed to your kitchen to make your coffee, and you walk from your house. Well, you probably take the train, but whatever, however you get there, you walk. You walk from your desk to the bathroom. You just walk everywhere. And yet it is one of the most theologically significant metaphors or realities there is. It starts early in the book of Genesis with God in the habit of walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God likes to walk. I can imagine Adam and Eve walking closely with God in that part of the story in Genesis 3. Enoch, who is a direct descendant of Adam and Eve in Genesis 5, is said to have walked with God. Noah, in Genesis 6, did the same thing, walked with God. Later, the prophet Micah asked this very provocative and sort of um, uh, rhetorical question, what does the Lord require of you? Micah 6, 8, we probably have all memorized this. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy. I mean, he lists some religious things there. Go to church, to give money, <laughs> to serve, all the things, right? Do all those things. Read your Bibles, and those are fine. doesn't say, don't do those things. But then he says this in a very, the litmus test, litmus test of a life of faith is simple and it's personal. God wants us to love mercy and to do justly and to walk, maybe this is the main thing, to walk humbly with your God. To do justice, Silas talked about that, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Later still, Paul picks up on this theme. He says, follow God's example in Ephesians 5. He says, as dearly loved children walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Walk with God. Walking is a primary way of knowing God. A primary. And so I guess the question becomes, what does that look like? Like for us as human beings, Jesus is now ascended and not walking the earth like he did. It, I can't imagine Jesus coming up to me and walking next to me physically like he did with these two on the road to Emmaus. What's it going to look like for me, just Jack Brace, you know, or you, to walk with God? What's that going to look like? Because see, the Bible, it's clear in these examples I gave you, and there's many more, when the Bible talks about walking in the Spirit, walking in the light, walking in truth, all these things, it's clear it means it in a figurative way. It's a way in which we describe our faith. So you're not literally just walking out your faith all the time. Um, so it's a metaphor, and, I, and, and, and metaphors are beautiful, and I can, but I can hear someone in the room saying, Jack, can you please put the cookies on the lower shelf for me? Because I love metaphor, but I really kind of want to know what that might look like. I'd love to hear what that looks like. Well, back to our friends on the road to Emmaus, because they are walking literally with God. My suspicion in this example is, is that this walk and then others like it, people who literally walked with God in the Bible, the disciples, for example, they did it for some really practical reasons. It wasn't because they didn't have cars 
or they didn't want to, I mean, Jesus one time gets on a donkey and they didn't feel like riding horses, but it's because I think walking is in, in, in the Bible and I think in our lives is a means of intimacy. Walking is, is the currency of intimacy in the Bible. Um, you walk to talk to somebody, right? You walk to have fellowship with them. You walk because you're friends. Am I right? You go walking with my wife all the time. I get to hear, I don't hear about the walks, but, you know, we're neighbors. So we, we, I've walked with many of you. And um, you walk, I walk with you because we're friends. We're going to walk this week. We walk because we're friends. I'm reminded of this passage from C.S. Lewis's Four, Four Loves. This, uh, when I was thinking about this this week, he imagines two lovers, um, standing face to face. And you can imagine this if you have a spouse or someone you love and have loved. And you're, you're face to face, you're absorbed in each other's kind of faces. You're, you're talking about your love for one another, right? Friends, he says, though, are not generally face to face. That might be awkward. <laughs> if you looked one of your friends deeply in the eye for an extended period of time, maybe we should try that. Um, you're hardly ever face-to-face. You're usually standing, he says, shoulder-to-shoulder, walking side-by-side, and you're absorbed not in each other, but in some sort of a common interest. It's often a quest or an adventure or a pilgrimage, as Silas talked about, a common and shared commitment. We would love to have some of you walk Lake City, walk Seattle, and learn about some of the heritage, the AAPI heritage here this month. It's not a coincidence that we're inviting you to walk these streets, walk down by the library here, and learn some of that geography, feel it under your feet. There's a sense of personal presence that's shared when you walk, when you're walking with someone else, a sense of common purpose, a mission, if you will, that emerges with you. So Jesus is walking with them to receive, to cultivate the friendship that I think is primary to their relationship with God. Don't forget the friendship you've shared with God. Um, and so when you walk with God, to put it in your life, it means that when you read Scripture, you'll be, we'll be talking about this later in the sermon series, you're not just doing it because it's interesting. Oh, this is an interesting book. I think I'll read about it. I walked, watched a guy, um, I was crossing over uh, Northgate Way the other day. There's a busy intersection there that I often cross. This guy walks up, and he's got a Bible open, and he's got earpods on, <laughs> And he's reading a Bible, and he's looking at the, he's waiting for the intersection, I'm sitting there watching him, and I'm like, I've read my Bible a few times in my life, and something's not computing here, dude. Like, you're reading your Bible as you're walking, and you have AirPods on, and there's a busy street. How is that even working for you? Maybe it's just interesting to him. Maybe he was really immersed in it. He didn't appear to be immersed in it. You're not reading the Bible for those reasons. You're, you're reading the Bible because you're actually seeking God's presence in it. Remember, it's like walking with God, God's presence. You're desiring to hear God speak to you in life-changing ways. It might inform where you read your Bible, how you read your Bible, but you're doing it in a way to understand more clearly God's call on your life. Um, this is not an informational book with which we extract the, the answers for our lives. It's a way in which we engage, God, engage God's presence. Likewise, when we pray, we're not just sending up SOS flares. Oh, Lord, <laughs> if you're out there, will you please do something about this situation? I mean, I've prayed that prayer many, many times. And I want God to intervene. And that's not a bad prayer. But I think when we're praying as a walk with God, there's a sense of us listening to God and God speaking to us. 
in a sense that we're heard by God as well. Remember, walking with friends, you're sharing intimacy, and you're desiring to know more deeply the will of God. You're designed to be in communion with God. Is this making sense to you? Um, What's more, so walking is a means of intimacy. Walking is also slow. It's persistent, and it's continuous. This is not running with God, okay? Uh, Jesus did not come up to them and say, hey, hey, you guys want to go for a jog? You know, I've been tied up with work for the last several days. I've got to burn off a little energy. That was supposed to be funny. Okay. <laughs> you know, if you look up walking, physical walking in a concordance sometime. Thank you, Allison. Appreciate that. <laughs> I know, I, I tell bad jokes sometimes, and that was one of them. If you do a word study of walking in the Bible, you're going to find that the number one pedestrian in the Bible is Jesus. He's the number one walker in the Bible. He doesn't run. He doesn't teach classes in a seminary. He doesn't preach sermons from a pulpit. He doesn't have people come to his office for counseling sessions. He doesn't invite the sick and the hungry to come to him. He goes to them. He walks to them, you know. And why? Because, well, you cannot maintain running for, I don't care how good you are as a runner, and I imagine Jesus was a pretty good runner. He's God, so there's that. But you might be a really good runner, but walking over the, running over the long haul is sustainable. I've had a couple of you invite me to run with you, and, and I've run with you. And the only thing I'm thinking about when I'm running with you is when this is going to end. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm certainly not thinking about, hey, how's your day going, you know? And like, maybe on my bike I'll do that with you because I can do that a little better. But running is not sustainable over the long haul. And there's a lot of, here's, here's how this maps to your life. There's a lot of people who think that their life in Christ is a run, right? Who that spiritual growth is really a matter of sprinting or somersaulting to the finish line. People will say things, I'm going to give my life to God, the Lord. I'm going to change all these things, these terrible habits. I'm going to do it this time. Usually it's around January 1st. (laughs) Give me six months. I'm really going to be a new man or new woman this time. And though there may be seasons for those kinds of statements, um, when that's good and that's needed, I I once was in a season, and I've been in many seasons like this, but I'm thinking of a particular season in my life where I was very much caving, um, and my life dramatically changed. And I could tell my whole story, and I will at some point, but I'm grateful for how dramatic that change was. I wouldn't be here this moment if the change that uh, caused me to meet Jesus wasn't so dramatic. That's how much in darkness I was. But over the long haul, my faith hasn't been that dramatic. Really, it hasn't. It's been a walk, friends. I mean, if you just had a movie of my life, it wouldn't sell a single ticket. It's been a day in and day out, as Eugene Peterson puts it, like a long obedience in the same direction. It's been a walk daily. It's been rhythmic. It's been routine. It's been slow. It's been imperceptible growth. I sometimes will look back at my journals and realize, wow, I'm still praying that prayer. I'm still struggling with that issue. I'm still thinking about that thought as if it's the first time, right? At times, it's been two steps forward and then one back. Some of us are going sideways right now. It's still movement is what I'm trying to say. It's still a walk. And so here's the key. It's it's for us to realize that we can walk with God for a very long time. It's about intimacy and it's about length, which is why walking is one of the most powerful metaphors or vehicles for our spiritual growth that God's given to us. Slow, persistent walking in faith. And so as I hand things over to Silas now, Guess what I just want to invite us to remember is that our journey of faith, this invitation of God that we're centering in on these weeks, is just simply a walk. 
It's about deepening a sense of Jesus' presence with you. That's what we want to invite you to. And keep doing that and being reminded that Jesus is present with you, with us, in the daily warp and whoop of your life. You might feel like, man, I don't hear God. I don't see God. Maybe it's reframing it as a walk with God and taking a step today and just allowing yourself to show up, allowing God to show up, and, and, and knowing that eventually, it may take a very, very long time, your heart will begin to burn within you. That's the end of the story. I think we get excited about it, but I think this is a reminder that we may not recognize God walking with us in the moment. It might just take a really long time. It might take a lifetime. That might come later. I don't know when that comes, but might we still walk in God's presence, okay? I'm going to hand it over to you. It feels like we're on like a talk show. Here you go, buddy. Pointing out, uh, one of the things that we engage in this journey, this walking with each other, is this idea, right, that the witness of our Christian life is how we are with each other, right? Len Sweet, he's a Methodist theologian. He talks about how the strongest witness we have as Christians is our witness, how we are with each other and how we walk with each other, and then also how we share meals with each other, how we engage in the daily practice of sustenance, of finding nourishment. In many ways, this story has all the elements we do, our walking, our movement, and then also the times when we have to stop and refuel. Without that, we will die. And in the story as it happens, it doesn't just happen by yourself, which is so countercultural to our, uh, our moment, right? Did you know that the most common place that someone has a meal in North America is their car? The most common place someone has a meal by themselves is in the car. Um, and this is w- ways in which the food industry and all that tailors to that experience because that is the most common place. And so let us make meals accessible in that way. When that happens, right, the, the witness that we are talking about in walking life with each other, we just lose that. We lose it in a moment. And the story invites us to think about how we walk with each other, but then also how we find nourishment with each other through community, through sharing, and through the act of breaking bread. Many times in this text, this text, as we get to Jesus, verse 28, 29, and 30, and he intends to pass by, he intends to walk by for, for us, we, we might miss the ancient Near Eastern customs that happened there. Normally, when you offer uh, hospitality in that culture and at that time, it's not the first ask that happens. You're supposed to culturally reject that first ask. So it's like, in my family culture, um, when we are with all my uncles, and 
we, we finish a meal. Everyone haggles for the check, right? No one wants the check, but everyone haggles for the check. You know what's happening in that moment. There's a cultural thing that is in the water for us. Well, in this story, as Jesus is offered uh, room and board, offered hospitality, he says no, and it says he makes as if he's going to walk by. And he's hoping for the invitation, the second invitation, the one that is the true invitation, right? Not just the cultural, hey, come eat with us. Oh, can't do it. Well, you know, we'll get coffee sometime, right? Instead, it's, no, 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 we want you in this place. Come stay with us. And so in the staying, we see Jesus do something radical in the midst of the story because he's not the host, but he grabs the bread and he breaks the bread. He's not the host. He shouldn't be doing this. We know that he knows the cultural norms because he's doing the thing of making to walk by. That's in the water. But what do we make of this? Jesus in a home that's not his home, on a meal that he's supposed to be the guest, comes and takes the bread and he's made known in his breaking of bread. Again, we can spiritualize this moment. And oftentimes, theologians from the first century on have said this story talks about this meal, this communion meal, this Eucharistic meal. They've talked about how Jesus is the body and, or the bread and the, the blood of Christ are present in this meal. And again, theologians forever have engaged it that way. But as Jesus, just play the narrative out, as Jesus takes the bread and breaks the bread, and shows the bread. What do people see? How do they know that this is Jesus? They see his scars. They see his wounds as he breaks bread. They see the way that his body has been broken. Isn't that the way that we encounter each other as we walk with each other? Right? This call to walk with each other in life is not one that says you only show the curated, perfect, crafted image of who you are. But this call of walking and then sharing the meal is to authentic relationship. And not just authentic relationship, but in a way that ministers outwards, but the reception of someone else's woundedness. Because that's where Jesus can be found. In the breaking of bread, he is made known. And their hearts burn within them as they reflect on the scriptures, the prophets, and all the law of Moses happening in this story. As we think about the way that a meal itself invites us to share our woundedness with each other, this story becomes instructive for how we walk with each other through life. I love the way that Jack talks and he noted about how they're walking away from Jerusalem. Right? They're walking away from Jerusalem on the road and it's a journey that isn't quick. It takes time. And depending who you're walking with, maybe that's where you feel like your life is. You're walking away from what you expected about God in a religious city and place, perhaps an experience. You're walking away from that place. And who knows what you're feeling, but 
it might be, as Jack pointed out, that sense of disillusionment, walking away. Let me encourage you to say that this text, as it reads us, invites us to say that we're not even arrived to where we are, but along the journey, we might have these moments where as we encounter each other, God becomes known in everyday, common breaking of bread. And in those moments, notice what happens at the end of the story. Immediately they are propelled and they go back to Jerusalem because they proclaim the good news to people who need to hear it in that space. We have this two-way direction happening through the story. And then beyond that, we have these calls to say, as we are with each other, can we recognize God in the everyday? And can we recognize the ways in which our community, our friends, our people, our family, we're journeying with them in a journey of faith? I love also how Jack noted for us, the journey of faith isn't a sprint, right? Like, When you sprint, you get tired. And when you get tired, you have to pause. Versus on a longer journey that becomes a sustainable walk of God, it brings us back to that idea that in the garden, Jesus is walking, or God is walking with them, Adam and Eve, in the cool of the night in the journey. This text invites us in many ways to journey with God. And that's also why we in many ways, look at this invitation thing. This whole series is an invitation to journey with God on that. And so as we look at the way that God is present in the meal, as we look at how God is present with each other, as we walk with each other and as we eat with each other, we are excited to participate in communion this week. If you don't have a cup... Make sure you grab one of these. We'll have them available up here. And if you also do need a gluten-free option, we have gluten-free crackers up here available for you. But make sure you have one of these. And the way in which that we participate in communion, in this communing with, invites us again to have the bread and the juice. Through Christian history, as we noted, This meal has meant many things. Sometimes it is about the transforming of us as we eat. As we focus on the meal today, I want you to focus on your witness. Who are you walking life with? Who might God be calling you to walk life with? And how might you find nourishment in this so that you can walk in a way that is life-giving? Let me go through those again. Who are you walking with? Who's God calling you to walk with? And how are you being nourished by God to do that walk well? This is what the story invites us into. The recognition that God is present in the holy meal, in the body broken through the bread, in the blood shed. In my tradition, the blood is a big theme for us. Washed in the blood. There's power in the blood. This juice symbolizes that space for us. 
And so you'll see instructions on the screen again. We'll partake together in just a moment. But I want us to hear this benediction or this uh, invocation to communing on this cup and this holy meal. Friends, this is from an Ionian community. And they, when they come to the meal, they talk about it in this way. They say, this is the meal, not of God, or not of the church, but of God. This is the meal, not of the church, but of God. It is made for those who desire to know God, and also for those who do not desire. At the same time, God says, come. And so come, friends. As you partake in this bread and this juice, come you who have desired to know God for a long time and those who have struggled to do that well. For those who have felt the fullness of God in your life and for those who feel like you're in a fallow time, come. Find the nourishment of the Lord in this meal that invites us to share life with each other. Again, this whole structure of today has been about walking with God and also communing with each other in a way that embodies the fullness of God. And so if you have your cracker, that first top layer, it opens up in the snack pack. Let's take that and let us commune and eat this bread together. This is the body of Christ broken for us. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. He said, this is the blood shed for the remission of sins and for the fullness of creation. And so let us partake in this bread. That's the second layer. Careful, it does get a little sticky. And hear this prayer of commission as we reflect on the word spoken and the word consumed. God, we are grateful for the gifts of this day and the way that you walk with us. Reminded of that old spiritual, we want you, Jesus, to walk with us. And we celebrate that you do that. Just in the midst of this story, you walk with us. And also, we celebrate the ways that you are a God who nourishes us and meets us in our everyday, that meets us in the everyday meals we do. We pray as we eat, as we find nourishment, you might open our eyes to see you present. May our heart burn within us as we encounter your fullness in the people around us. May your spirit give us discernment to discover how you call us to work. And may we find your life in this bread and in this juice. May we find you as you intend to pass us by. We are grateful for this gift. And we say this with Christ by the power of the spirit.
Amen and amen. Friends, let's continue on in worship. <laughs>